Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Uh, merciful God, our Heavenly Father, help us to be those uh, tonight who know the good work of your word in our lives, people who hear and understand, who see and perceive, and come to trust your Son Jesus as our Saviour. And gracious uh, Father, uh, we do pray that through the teaching, rebuke, correction and training of your word, we would be equipped to live as his followers, doing the good you have prepared for us to do. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly as I ought. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, throughout the Gospel, Jesus' ministry has been working towards a climax, a decisive moment, a moment that will either vindicate his claims and coming or mark him out as just another failed visionary. Jesus and John have both spoken of that moment as his hour. The hour we've been repeatedly told up to this point has not yet come. But in these last few chapters of John, we have felt that moment draw closer as Jesus' signs and teaching have made dealing with his claims increasingly unavoidable, as we have seen opposition to Jesus grow and become more determined. And as we've heard the rapturous cries of the crowds greeting him as king on his entry into Jerusalem. Now prompted by the desire of the Greeks to come to him, Jesus says that this decisive moment has arrived. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. That is my time. For Jesus is referring to himself when he speaks of the Son of Man. My time to be glorified has arrived. And for someone who was familiar with the prophecy of Daniel 7, which speaks of the Son of Man, if you'd been familiar with that, when you heard Jesus say that, your heart would leap. For the glorification of the Son of Man, the revealing of his greatness, is his coming into the presence of the Almighty God, the Ancient of Days, coming to his throne to receive, verse 14, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. The glorification of the Son of Man is receiving an eternal kingdom, a never-ending rule over all. It is a time of triumph. And Daniel 7 goes on to tell us that the glorification of the Son of Man is also the vindication and security of God's people as God judges the idolatrous kingdoms that oppress them. The glorification of the Son of Man is a time of joy. And so what follows here in John Jesus' declaration that the hour of his glorification has come is puzzling and confronting. For Jesus goes on to speak of the hour, speak of the content of this hour as his death. And in the light of that, to speak of the struggle of this hour, as well as the outcome of his hour and what that will mean for his followers in the world. And yet, as we hear Jesus speak of his hour, even of his death, we will see that this is not just a time that's decisive for him, but for the world, for humanity, and yes, for you. 
Jesus' hour, the hour of his glorification, is the decisive moment in history, in our lives, the decisive moment for each one of us here. The hour has come, says Jesus, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus speaks of glorification and then immediately speaks of death, of losing his life. But the content of his hour, he says, will be fruitful death, the death of the seed that bears much fruit, like the wheat seed that's sown one seed and then gives rise to the plant with a hundred seeds. Now Jesus has spoken before in the gospel of his death as the source of life for others. He said he is like the serpent in the wilderness, lifted up to give eternal life to all who trust him. He said he's the living bread that's come down from heaven. And the bread, he says, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus continues to the end convinced that his death is purposeful and life-giving. And his death, he says, will embody what is true for all in this world, a world which in John is understood as human society united in its rebellion against God. Whoever loves his life loses it, he says, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And that is a truth that those who would serve him, that is, be his subjects in the eternal kingdom of the glorified Son of Man, must embrace. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. To serve Jesus, we must follow him. There is no other way of belonging to the eternal kingdom, of knowing the eternal peace and secure well-being of those who live with the Son as their king. Now, sitting here tonight, maybe you come to church often, ask yourself, have you got used to this kind of talk? Or do you still feel how strange it is? How strange to claim to save by dying. A dead leader is usually a useless leader. A dead leader is powerless to keep any of his promises. How can Jesus be confident his death will bring life not just inspire people as a martyr's death may, but bring the never-ending life of the age to come, a new life, eternal life. And how strange Jesus' call is. We love our lives. We want to hold on to them and enhance and enrich them. But Jesus calls us to hate them in this world, to hate the life we live in a society shaped by its love of self and rejection of God and to instead follow him in loving God and dying to do God's will. How can Jesus be confident that our dying to follow him is the way to live? Yet Jesus is confident, confident, because as we've seen in the gospel, he's confident of his relationship with the Father, with God, that he is sent from the Father 
doing even in death as we'll see the Father's will. That confidence is seen in what he promises those who serve him. Where I am, he says, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. The glorious Son of Man is in the presence of God and those who serve Jesus will be there with him. In fact, he says, the Father, the Almighty God, will honour him. The content of Jesus' hour of his glorification strangely focuses on a fruitful death, his death which determines the character of our following him. And that focus on his death means that this is not an easy hour. Jesus may be confident of the outcome, but death is a hard thing for any human to contemplate. All we know as humans is life. That is all the embodied Jesus has experienced. But now he contemplates death, death on a cross, death which is humiliation, shame and pain. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No one wants to embrace suffering and shame, and so as he does in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus expresses his natural longing to live, to come to his throne in some other way. Father, save me from this hour. But he chooses to end his life as he has lived it, seeking the Father's will. As he came down from heaven to do the Father's will and bring glory to the Father by doing his will, so here Jesus commits himself to doing that will to the end. And so prays, Father, glorify your name. Jesus is both entrusting himself to the Father in obedience and revealing the desire which has directed his whole life. Jesus wants the Father, God, to show himself to be the one whom he has revealed himself to be to vindicate his revelation of himself in his word to his people because God's name, the Father's name, is his revelation of himself. Jesus wants God to spread abroad his fame so that all might see and acknowledge the truth about the living God, his glorious reality. This is a prayer that in the events that follow in the gospel, the Father will show himself to be just and holy, to be the one who has life in himself, the only judge and saviour, the Almighty. This is a prayer that the Father will be faithful to his promises, his promise to exalt his faithful one, his Son, his Christ, as the ruler and judge of the nations, the shepherd and saviour of his people, the one who brings and gives the Spirit the life of the age to come. You see, unlike Adam, who loved self above God, Jesus, the Son, loves the Father above himself, loves the Father with his whole being. Unlike Adam, who based his action on God not keeping his word, you will not die. The Son stakes everything on the truthfulness of God's word. At this climactic moment that will determine forever whether his life is a lie and a failure or true and glorious, Jesus does not pray for himself. He prays, Father, glorify 
your name. And in response, a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it. God has glorified himself in the words and deeds of the Son throughout his ministry, which revealed the glory of God. And the Father says, I will glorify it again. In the unlikely events that follow, in the Son being lifted up on the cross, through betrayal and envy and cruelty, through lies and hatred, the Father will show himself to be glorious, to reveal the truth of his great name. But this voice, heard indistinctly by the crowds, was not for Jesus, but for them and for us. You see, Jesus doesn't doubt the Father's commitment or character. This voice is to help Jesus hear us and us see that what follows, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, as well as the resurrection, is the Father's glory being revealed in the obedience of the Son and not some failure or error or accident. And Jesus is confident the Father's glory will be seen in the outcome of his dying, like the seed, in the outcome of his hating his life in this world because he loves the Father. Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus says three things will follow on this climactic hour. Three things will follow from the Son of Man's glorification. Firstly, the judgment of this world, humanity organised in rebellion against God. The world, the whole world, Jew and Gentile, religious and secular, the leaders and the mob, the governor and the rank and file is about to judge Jesus and condemn him to death. Humanity, united in its rejection of God and his rule through his word, is about to condemn God come amongst them. And in that act, in their judgment on Jesus, they will be judged. The rebellion of humanity against its creator will be exposed for what it is, as bringing death, not life, embracing hate, not love, injustice, not justice. Whatever rebellious humanity claims of its wisdom or goodness or might in defiance of their God will be seen as a lie. And in their judgment on Jesus, the world will be declared a failure. For their judgment will be seen to be powerless and unable to overturn God's judgment. You see, the Son will live where the world declared death. The Son will rule where the world declared him to be nothing. The Son will be glorious where they shamed him. The Son, even in his death, will be the powerful and effective saviour of his people, where the world declared him to be so powerless he could not even save himself. Now remember this. When you hear the seductive claims of our world, you know those claims, that life, the flourishing of your life, your true humanity, will be found by choosing your way over God's that you will flourish if you join the world in excluding and ignoring God. Whether that's 
to pursue your sexual desire or your desire for money or power or whatever. When you hear that claim, remember the cross and the judgment of the world once and for all in the lifting up of the Son of Man. And secondly, this hour of glorification will mean the casting out of the ruler of this world. The devil is described in John as the ruler of this world because he is the one who keeps all in the slavery of sin and directs the world through his lie. You will not die. God won't keep his word. You can be like God. But now the devil is deposed and dethroned. Those who were his captives will be freed by the cross and all authority in heaven and earth given to the Son. So the devil will not be able to hold people in death anymore or tyrannise them with its fear. For life and immortality are brought to light by the death, rising and exaltation of the Son, Jesus. And the devil's accusations against Jesus' people, parading their sin and demanding their condemnation, will now have no power, for Jesus has died for their sins and covered over their offence with his blood. I hope you know that, if you're a believer, that the devil has been cast out and nothing will separate you from the love of your God because Jesus has been exalted. And of course the Son of Man, the Son Jesus, lifted up on the cross and through the cross exalted as the living Saviour, will, he says, draw all people to himself. Jesus will not be able to be ignored by any. Even those who dismiss him in this life will one day face him. He will continue to be the central issue for the outcome of every life and for every society. And he will save all those, whatever their race or language or culture, who come to him drawn by the Father. He can do this because in being lifted up in his death he has taken away the sins of the world and is exalted to the Father's right hand. He has authority to judge and to forgive, to forgive all who turn to him. And remember, Jesus is not speaking these words when the Christian gospel has spread around the world. Jesus is speaking in a backwater of an ancient empire before he dies a death of shame that most would want to forget. And John is not writing when the Christian faith was anything other than a small missionary movement. Yet Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Look around. Look around our world. All people trust Jesus. Actually, look around this room. People from so many different cultures and countries. There is Jesus, about to be abandoned by all, speaking of his death. Who was right? Jesus. How could he know? Well, it wasn't from the zeitgeist, the consensus of opinion. The crowd is just confused. Who is this son of man, they say? Well, Jesus could be confident of the outcome because he knew his being lifted up on the cross was not some plan B. 
not some plan B, the result of the failure of his ministry to win support, to win over his critics. I mean, at this point in the Gospel story, you could think that, couldn't you? <laughs> that Jesus is just about to pay the price for his dismal failure, the failure of his ministry that had not won over the powerful and influ influential, not even won over the majority of people. The Gospel is brutally honest, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. But that unbelief, John tells us, is not failure, but fulfilment. It was prophesied, verse 38, and it happened so that the word God had spoken in Isaiah 53, about 800 years before, would be fulfilled. John, in verse 38, quotes Isaiah 53.1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? So that we would know, not only that the unbelief was prophesied, but that that unbelief would be the circumstances, the context for the ministry of the servant spoken of in Isaiah 53. It's this unbelief that will actually bring about the death of that servant for the sins of his people. The death where, well, he is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, where the chastisement that brings us peace is laid on him, where the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus is confident because he knows God has a plan to save his people, a plan that will come to pass through his rejection, a plan that God in his Son will be exalted as the only saviour of the world. And the fulfilment of that plan is never in doubt. That unbelief, despite signs that should have changed the minds and brought conviction about who Jesus is to those who saw them, that unbelief, we're told from Isaiah 6, was certain. For it is God's determined and just judgment on a sinful people. In fact, John assures us that Isaiah, in speaking of unbelief and the ministry of the servant, saw verse 41 his glory, saw Jesus' glory in glimpsing the Lord on his throne and seeing him revealed as the saviour of his people. That Isaiah, even from afar, saw the revelation of Jesus and his saving work and the greatness of his being and what was prophesied is now being fulfilled. This hour of fruitful death, this troubling hour of suffering, this hour which would bring judgment on rebellion, the deposing of the evil one, the lifting up on the cross and to the Father's side of the Son of Man as the Saviour of the world, this climactic moment of glorification in death and rising and return to the Father was written. It was the plan and purpose of the Almighty God and that is why Jesus is confident. And in its fulfilment, the Father's glory in his truthfulness and graciousness will be revealed in the revelation of the Son's glory as the Saviour of the world. Having come to this climactic hour, knowing what is to come, Jesus in verses 44 to 50 
then looks back and summarises what he has taught of his word and the purpose of his coming, summarises to emphasise, because his hour is still a time to warn and invite. You see, Jesus in verses 34 to 36 has already urged the confused and clueless crowd to believe in him, to trust what he says, so that in the confusion of the days ahead they would have light and the safety of the light in darkness. While you have the light, he says to them, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. That is, believe my word, says Jesus, so that your whole life will be characterised by light, your thinking and actions informed by the truth, and that will keep you safe. Now, before the cross, in verses 44 to 45, he reminds his hearers and us that his words and work are the words and work of God and that what is at stake in our response to him, especially our response to him crucified, is our response to the living God. Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And he tells us that while a judgment will be enacted on the cross on the world, that the purpose of his coming is to bring light to our darkness, to save from judgment. Verse 47, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But having reminded us of his purpose, he also warns us. You see, because his word is the word of the living God, an eternal word that will never be broken, where that word is rejected and ignored, a judgment is inevitable. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that day. And it must be so, mustn't it? If you turn your back on the light, you remain in darkness. If you reject the only word that can give you life, you remain in death. If you ignore the invitation of God to be reconciled to him through his son, you remain estranged from your creator forever. And so Jesus' words are still a warning to us, even as he offers us life. And he does, for his invitation is also sure. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Even as he goes to the cross, Jesus declares that the Father's command is to give life to all who will trust him. Heeding Jesus, responding to Jesus... As the Father speaks in his Son, as he speaks in the gospel of his Son, brings life, eternal life. And what Jesus declares, that the Father's command is life, he himself lives by. He goes to the cross in obedience to the Father's command and shows us in that obedience and in his rising, that the Father's command is life, deathless life. Jesus' demonstration of the Father's glory is his hour of glory. 
His revealing of the Father's glory in the faith in the Father's faithfulness and graciousness in his giving of his Son for the sins of the world and then raising him up to life and to be the source of life <coughs> is the glorification of the Son. And the glorification of the Son gives clarity to the response we should make to Jesus, gives certainty to his promise, and gives urgency to the invitation and warning Jesus speaks here, Jesus speaks to you. His glorification gives clarity to the response we should make to Jesus for nothing less than following Jesus in giving all to do the Father's will is an adequate response to Jesus, the glorified Son of Man. You see, there are other responses. There's actually a believing in Jesus which is no response at all. We see that, verses 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, those people had a conviction about Jesus, that he was probably a good man, Somebody speaking the truth. They were kind of for Jesus. But that conviction was purely private and personal, unaccompanied by confession, unwilling to pay a cost. And in that, well, in, in showing that they loved people and their opinion more than God, in fearing people more than God, they were actually revealing that their hearts were in reality still dead to God. So I think, is that you? Is that you here tonight? Because let's face it, people who are in favour of Jesus probably will be sitting in churches. You, kind of well disposed to Jesus, think he's a decent person, worth listening to, but yet you keep quiet. You don't confess him and you don't change your life to do Jesus' will because Actually, you want to be praised and well thought of by others rather than God. Well, don't think that you are saved. We'll have any welcome by the Father. For Jesus tells us here the response he calls for, the response to him that will give life, the only response that is fitting. For we must always deal with the glorified Son of Man who has all rule and authority on his terms. This is the response Jesus says brings life. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. If we're to belong to Jesus' eternal kingdom, we must follow Jesus in losing our lives like Jesus to do the Father's will. And so being willing to be different from the world, from a society that does not want to acknowledge that the Lord reigns and his will should be done. So think tonight, what does saying yes to the Father's will and no to loving your own life, what does that mean for you? What does it look like? Well, for every one of us, it means confessing Jesus as Lord because the Father's will is that we believe in his Son and honour him. Oh, and it will mean loving Jesus' people. That's how Jesus says his people are known. 
publicly identifying with them, meeting with them, helping them, not living a self-interested life organised around your own personal desires and preferences, but giving up your interests to love Jesus' people. It will mean holding fast to Jesus' truth, including the unpopular parts of that truth, like creation and judgment, conforming your sexual morality to God's word, storing up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Oh yes, and like your Lord, continuing to invite others to trust Jesus and warn them of the consequences of ignoring him. What does it look like for you to say yes to the Father's will, to be like Jesus in giving up your life in this world to follow him? The cross that Jesus takes on here to save the world, the cross that with the resurrection and return to the Father is his glorification, gives the shape of the lives of his followers of you and I, if we are believers. Oh, and Jesus is clear that his taking the cross and his glorification by the cross makes the outcome of following him certain. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now, if you're a believer, is that your conviction? that you, you lose your life to keep it for eternal life? Is that a hope that encourages you each day, that what awaits is being with Jesus, where his home is your home? Oh, and that following Jesus, are you convicted that you, believer, conscious hopefully of how insignificant you are, conscious even now of your failures, of your poor love of Jesus, of your inconsistent following, able even as you sit there to think of words you would have liked to take back, thoughts that you are glad no one else knows, actions that fill you with shame. Are you conscious that you, following Jesus, will be honoured by the Father, the true and holy God, welcomed by him, because you are Jesus' servant, welcomed by him because Jesus hated his life in this world and gave it up to be lifted on the, up on the cross to be the saviour of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just think for a moment. What is it worth to be where Jesus is and to be welcomed by the holy, almighty, righteous God, the Father? Do you live knowing that? That your small daily denials, saying no to self and yes to doing Jesus' will because he is your loving Lord, do you live knowing that your small daily denials will mean you will be with your Saviour and honoured by the Father? Isn't that a good reason to persevere in saying no to self and yes to Jesus. Isn't that a good reason to pray every morning for grace to say in all things, not my will, but yours be done, and at evening to give thanks that the glorified Son of Man is your Lord. This hour 
of the Son's glorification gives clarity and certainty and yes, it gives urgency. Jesus' glorification gives urgency to the warning and invitation that he is still making the exalted Son through his gospel. Jesus came to save and we share a message of salvation, not condemnation, a message that says the gracious Lord will forgive and give life to all who turn and confess him Lord. But like our Lord, we must also warn that to ignore or reject this saving word is to be condemned justly with the world, for it is to continue to rebel. It's to continue to choose death over life, to choose the lie about God and ourselves over the truth. It's continue to choose love of self over love of our good and almighty creator. Now, not one of us knows the time of Jesus' return or of our death, the hour of our meeting our judge. So Jesus' invitation to you is urgent and it is sure. I know, says our Lord, that his commandment is eternal life. Now is the time to heed God's command and believe in his exalted son, Jesus. To believe, not the private, afraid of what others will think, toying with Jesus. No, to believe with the believing he calls for. Dying to all the sins that hold you back, your pride, your desire, your greed, and confessing Jesus as Lord before all and following him, living to do his will, whatever the cost in this life. Dying to all and following him because you trust him that where he is, you will be forever. And you know that in this hour of death and rising, he is, Jesus is, the glorious son of man, the ruler over all, the saviour of the world and your saviour as you trust and follow. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your great mercy, we pray that you would convict us of the Son's glory in his being lifted up on the cross, in his being raised from the dead, and in his returning to you, his Father, to reign at your right hand forever. And we pray, convicted of his glory, we would heed his call and we would be those who hate our lives in this life to keep them for eternal life. Help us to be those who follow, who listen to Jesus, who trust him, and who do what he says, dying to ourselves to do your good and gracious will. And gracious Father, we pray, help us to persevere in that, knowing the certainty of the Son's promise, that where he is exalted in your presence, so will his servants be, and that you, the almighty God, will welcome us into your presence and give us life forever. Please, we pray, keep us in this faith 
in this hope and in this love. Amen.